Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you all this morning. We are live. Yes, we are. Glad to see you all. We are continuing in our study of numbers today. Um, as you know, this year we have been looking at Moses and his character and the impact that he made on the Israelites and then the formation of the Jewish people. And so now we are in those books that are, you know, perhaps not as quite as exciting as Exodus, um, but they are good for us to know. And so before we jump into numbers today, a quick reminder that you can get all of our old lessons at stmichael.org slash RBS and that we've got a podcast that is being backfilled and I'm, they promise me that in the next month, all of the stuff all the way back to Luke is actually going to be there. And so don't give up. And a reminder, I love questions. And so steal yourselves and become confident to ask your questions. Those of you joining us on social media platforms, you can ask and Bub will actually make sure that you get those questions asked here live. Let's open with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless us this day, to fill us with your presence and your peace. Help us as we study your word to be inspired to be your chosen people today, to help extend your kingdom on earth, and to share your love with everyone we meet. Be with our friends today who need your healing touch the most, those who we hold in the silence of our hearts, and those we name aloud. Today, I especially remember Bill Johnson. As we continue in this time together, may each one of these people be blessed. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I was asked before we kick in to say a word about last week. I was in the Holy Land. Well, no, two weeks ago. Um, the Holy Land. That was two weeks ago, right? I don't remember. Um, and would love for you to know that St. Michael is now in a cycle where we are sending pilgrims to the Holy Land every March. And so the intention is that every other year we send families with children, and then in the, in the alternating years we send adults. And so 2022 we sent families with children, and watching kids go through the Holy Land experience is just the best. They are like sponges. Um, and as I'm, you know, I'm a former youth minister, so I tend to prefer to be around teenagers. Um, and I will say that teenagers are so easy to travel with. Um, they just enjoy things, and they show up on time, um, and they take whatever they receive. Um, the implication being, traveling with adults is not quite that easy. Um, adults always have an opinion about something. Um, and so, and they're never on time. I promise you, never once did we wait on the bus for a child. Never once. <laughs> Only ever adults. Um, but it was a wonderful experience. And for those of you who have never done this, it is not a cheap trip when it comes to just you know, money and time, but it is so worthwhile. And I know almost everyone I talk to says this is a bucket list kind of thing, like they really want to do it. So no time like the present. Put it on your list. Join us. You do not have to be a member of the church, although I will say that we do give members preference. And so when we go to sign up for the trip, members get preference for a few days and then we invite others in. Um, but anyone is welcome to register. Mary Lessman is leading the trip in 2023 and registration for that trip is in a few days. Um, Monday, thank you. Uh, so if you would like information, we've got a ton of information about all of our trips, including mission trips. If you go to stmichael.org trips, 
you can see the itineraries and you can read the brochures. That's where you can get registration links and you can get all the other information. And obviously call the church office if you have any questions like that um, about our trips. But we'll probably be advertising the 2024 family trip in just a few months. And so keep your eyes open for that. It takes, it takes a long time to prepare for it. Um, this trip to Israel, Israel has been super um, tight with COVID. And so all 39 of us took four PCR tests within two weeks and not one positive result in the entire group, which was superb. And so when we got back here, we really, really didn't have COVID. Um, I saw a hand over here. Yes. Nope. Registration is only online. Um, and before you tell me that you are wary of computers and you're afraid of all those things, I will tell you I'm sorry. Um, that is just, it is just what we do. And I will tell you why. So I have done immersion trips um, a number of times. And the first one I did here was a Journey of Paul cruise um, that we actually, I began registering for before I even moved to Dallas. And so that one was kind of baked. But we registered, or I registered for a trip to the Oberammergau Passion Play, and we were going to be super organized, and it was going to be, I think it was like a 9 a.m. on a Monday morning. We were going to be here. You could turn in your application nice and easy, right? Well, people showed up here before 6 a.m. They were in the hallways, in line. The people who showed up here actually before 9 a.m. ended up on the wait list. And so it was, I said, I don't like that. And although... Sometimes paper in your hand gives you a little bit more security. Doing it online, it is very simple. The online registration is basically your name and your email address and a payment, whether that's by, you can say you'll pay by check later, you can put in a credit card, you do whatever you want, that, but that's it. We do the full application registration later. Essentially, when you register for the trip, we're just putting you in order, date, timestamp. And it's very clean and it's very fair. Nobody's computer is working earlier than anyone else's computer. Um, and so I know it's a little unnerving, but my suggestion is just sit there a few minutes ahead of time and refresh it um, when you get close to the hour. Sorry, it's like you know Ticketmaster or something. Um, but it works, it works. We have done it multiple times. It's super clean and easy. We get a full registry of date, time, stamp. It's nice and clean. And then what we do is we go back within 24 hours and we will confirm who is on the trip first. And by first, I mean members in good standing. Now, what does that mean? That does not mean you like this church. That means you're actually a member and you give. So we give preference to people who are members and givers. Then, after a couple days, people who are members but don't give, and then people who are non-members. And so it's a cascade over the course of a few days so that the preference is really as it should be. Yes? What's the link one more time? Michael.org slash trips. Just trips. And they're all there in chronological order. So there are multiple trips in the works. Um, and so you just have to scroll down maybe a couple or three trips to find the one for the Holy Land. But there are a few on there listed. Any other questions? I promise it works. Okay, let's jump into our lesson today. We are in Numbers. 
We're going to be focusing on chapters six through nine, and there will be three parts of today's lesson. The first part, we're going to discuss Nazarites. Second part, we're going to talk about blessings. And part three, we're going to talk about God being a little flexible, which is kind of nice when God's flexible. So we're going to start in chapter six with the Nazarites. Chapter six, verse one. Here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When either men or women make a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves to the Lord, they shall separate themselves from wine and strong drink. They shall drink no wine, vinegar, or other vinegar, and shall not drink any grape juice or eat grapes or fresh or dried, and then on and on. And we'll stop there. Remember, as we go into today's study, this was not written during the events they describe. It was written hundreds of years later. And so if it sounds like there's a fully baked idea of a Nazarite right here at the foot of Mount Sinai, you're right. They had figured this out over time. And so I want to discuss what a Nazarite is because this idea is repeated throughout the Bible multiple times. And we're going to talk about some famous Nazarites. So, first off, based on last week's study, we know not everyone can be a priest. The priests come from the Levitical line. And not just from the Levites, remember, Levi had three sons. There is a particular Levitical line, which is through Aaron. And so Aaron's branch of the Levite clan is where we get priesthood. If you want to be a priest or a prophet, you can't discern that kind of work like we do now. So someone like me or any other priests or pastors that you know went through some kind of discernment process where they tried to listen to God's voice and they talked with people who knew them and they ultimately reached a decision where they would commit themselves to being in ministry, in ordained ministry of some kind. At this point in the Jewish tribe, so to speak, in the Jewish group, you can't just choose to be a priest if you're not from the right bloodline. However, if you're not from the right bloodline and you wish to be somehow consecrated to God's work, there is a way to do that. That is a Nazarite vow. Nazarite literally means consecrated or separated. And so do not confuse, this is not Nazarene, this is Nazarite. And Nazarite essentially means you're going to separate yourself, dedicate yourself in some particular way apart from the general public. That dedication does not necessarily mean for your life. That could be, in a sense, a short period of time. It could be a couple months, a couple years, and it also could be your entire life. But the implication is you set yourself apart for a certain period of time as something special because you're trying to relate more deeply to God. Now, a Nazarite vow is something that is essentially abstention from certain things. You have to abstain from wine and anything else that has to do with grapes, just in case. Because wine is essentially what? You've got grape juice that's mixed with a little bit of stuff and the bacteria and it kind of fizzles and then you get alcohol. You essentially need to stay away from all alcohol. And so nothing that is or even could be alcoholic. You have to refrain from cutting your hair. And so you commit to allowing your hair to just grow 
and that's all hair. You also commit to being ritually pure and not doing anything that would make you impure. Specifically, you cannot be around or touch dead bodies, which is a little bit odd to us because I don't know how many, I mean, anyone touched a dead body this week? I mean, probably not. Um, but that's because we have nice, sterile ways of dealing with the dead. At the time, we're talking about people just, there was no one, there was no one at the funeral home who kind of did everything for you. You did it. And so if you had a loved one or a family member die, then you took care of them. You prepared their body, you buried their body, you, in a sense, honored them in their last moments. And so whenever you did that, you became impure. As a Nazarite, part of your commitment is you don't do anything like that. So there's kind of essentially a risk. I mean, say a parent or a sibling or a spouse or someone like that died while you were under this vow, then you couldn't do the normal things to care for them at their time of death. And so, although it doesn't sound like a big issue, it could be, depending on what happens. That abstinence in those particular ways are really meant to separate the people from what is normal. We, <laughs> I know who I'm talking to. I was about to say, not everyone drinks every day. Well, <laughs> I know some of you. Um, and so, at the time, though, water was not clean, and so water could make you sick. So things like beer and wine were actually reliable ways to stay hydrated safely. And so by not drinking wine, it sounds to us like, you know, that's not that hard. I mean, how many people give up alcohol for Lent or something like that? It's, there's a bigger implication here. There's a bigger ripple because alcoholic drinks were the safe drinks they wouldn't make you sick. And so, in a sense, you're putting yourself a bit at risk by not drinking alcoholic beverages. And so, this commitment is serious, even though it is relatively simple. There are some notable, any questions just about what that even is, what a Nazarite vow even is, before we get into some of the notable Nazarites in scripture? Yeah, I know, it's a little strange. Okay, let's talk about notable Nazarites. There are three I'm going to hit today. Did you have a question? Okay. We're going to start with Samson. And you don't have to turn to this. But I want to highlight three. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And I'm going to read their stories from Scripture. You know, this is later on from Numbers. And I want you to just listen to their stories and see if you can connect the dots and the common threads of each of their stories. I should note that a Nazarite vow, although it could be something completely generous and good, I mean, as a person, you could be, everything could be fine and you could just do a Nazarite vow as almost a way to deepen your faith. It is also, and very commonly in scripture referenced, as a way to essentially clean up a problem or get something that you wanted. Uh, it's kind of like putting yourself in God's best graces in order to receive a particular kind of blessing. So let's look at these three stories because you will note their similarities. So the first story from Samson comes from Judges chapter 13. 
The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, having borne no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are barren, having borne no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, or to eat anything unclean, for you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor is to come to his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth. It is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like that of an angel, most awe-inspiring. I did not ask him where he came from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, You shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the baby shall be a Nazarite to God from birth to the day of his death. Samson, as I assume we all remember from Sunday school, was a very strong person until what happened? He cut his hair. Well, he didn't cut his hair, but his hair was cut. And so Samson represents essentially a lifetime Nazarite doing these particular things, not drinking, not touching dead bodies, well, and then not cutting his hair in order to gain blessing from God. Samson was a judge. And in the grand scheme of the biblical story, once the Israelites come into the promised land, they are somewhat disconnected. And before the kingdom period, there is the period of the judges. Judges were essentially people who received God's blessing in a particular way to do particular tasks. And so Samson was one of those people. The Israelites, as you heard, were captive by the Philistines. And Samson was strong enough to essentially push them out and give the Israelites their freedom back. But we know Samson's story about his hair. And that connects directly to this idea that he was a Nazarite. He was set apart and consecrated for a different kind of life. Now let's talk about Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants and no razor shall touch his head. I'm going to read the rest of the story because I just find it interesting, but you get the gist. As she prayed to the Lord, Eli, one of the priests, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made of him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. 
They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I've asked him of the Lord. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He will be given to the Lord, and she left him there for God. So here we have Hannah, who prays to God for this blessing, and now Samuel is set apart as a Nazarite. And now Samuel follows the period of the judges, and he becomes a prophet of God. And Samuel is the one who anoints Saul as the first king. And then when Saul eh, sort of underperforms, shall we say, Samuel's the one that goes and finds David and anoints David as the next king. Samuel, for his life, is a Nazarite. Now we've got someone in the New Testament, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not explicitly named as a Nazarite. But if you look at the way John is described as living apart from the people, as having wild hair and wearing wild skins and not drinking wine, he's essentially living as a Nazarite the entire time he's doing his own ministry. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. You know, it's always the woman who's barren, right? Whatever, I know. Okay. Once, when Zechariah was serving as a priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably upon me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. And then it goes on with his story. So, what's the common thread? They were all barren. And so, remember that, I say, I've said this many times in different, in different ways, the greatest purpose for Jewish people at this time, and uh, we're going to say, you know, it kind of maybe now, is to have children. How many families, and by the way, this is not only Jewish, but it is kind of cliche and a joke, right, that Jews have to get married and have kids. And until they do that, they've not really done the thing that they can do, right? You can be a doctor, a lawyer, you can do whatever you want. Have you had children? And until you have children, you've not really done the job. And so throughout scripture, we have story after story after story of women who are barren, even though, who knows, and God's blessing upon them to finally get pregnant. And oftentimes, it's pregnant in some miraculous way, as if they were either too old or perhaps they were virgins. We know that story too. And so the idea of becoming pregnant is a blessing, especially when the pregnancy is perhaps believed to be impossible. And so that blessing is continued here through all of these different stories and that Nazarite vow, living separated from the regular people, is the thread that connects all of these throughout the scripture. And we see the establishment of what it means to be a Nazarite right here in Numbers chapter 6. Yeah. Chris, in my book, uh, it says a man or woman who wants to make a special vow. Are there any examples of women? Of course not. Um, no. You'd... It's a good question, Rosman. I cannot think of a woman who would be explicitly described as having taken a Nazarite vow. Um, you know, I wonder if you could... Okay, I'm totally making this up. So if I'm wrong, don't tell me I'm wrong, internet. Um, so there... I just gave you three examples of three men who became, in a sense, prophets of some kind, and they lived as Nazarites for their entire life. It is very clear in Numbers chapter 6 that you can take a Nazarite vow for a short period of time as well. I would venture to say there are people in Scripture who may not explicitly take a Nazarite vow, but who understand a moment in their life where they set themselves apart from the norm to do something exceptional because of their faithfulness in God. I mean, I would say that's Ruth. Um, you know, there are moments where people make a choice, right? When Naomi says to Ruth, go home, and she says, no, no, I am going to stay with you. In a sense, she's putting herself at risk. But I think we don't know that she didn't cut her hair or didn't drink wine, but I do think that there is a sense here that there are moments in time where you do something exceptional that separates you or identifies you as 
a person who has, in a sense, given themselves over vulnerably to something that is godly or holy. And then by doing that, God blesses. And so I think there are moments, and Ruth's just one example, where people made a particular decision to not do what was perhaps easy or common, but to do something that was extremely faithful. And then they were blessed because they did that. And even if it wasn't for their entire life, it was for a period of time, and they were at the, in the moment uncertain what would happen. And yet God's blessing came upon them because they demonstrated their reliance on God in a pretty significant way. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts? All right, well, let's talk then about blessings. So Numbers chapter 6 continues on with a blessing that you are likely very familiar with. Let's look at verse 22. Chapter 6, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the Israelites. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. That little section becomes the priestly benediction. It is the Aaronic blessing, and it continues all the way to this day. It's a beautiful little phrase, and so I'm going to talk about that specific, those specific words and then talk about blessings in general. So we say the word blessing, or we use the word bless, in many, many ways. Sometimes it's kind of thoughtless or polite, like someone sneezes, you know, God bless you. We often will sign letters or something like that by saying, you know, many blessings or something like that. Um, we will say to people, God bless you as you go perhaps on a trip or do something that might be a bit risky. Then of course you've got your classic bless your heart, which might mean other things. Um, and so there are ways in which the idea of blessing shifts depending on use or need. In church, however, when we talk about a blessing, we are talking about something pretty specific. There are three parts to this blessing, this benediction in Numbers. And so the first you have, the Lord bless you and keep you. There is something secure in that first line. Bless you, yes, keep you. By keeping you, what is really being implied here is that you will be safe. You'll be secure in God's presence. God's with you in some very tangible way. So you can kind of calm your anxiety. You can let your worry go just a bit because God's got you. That's really what that means. Line number two, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. I love this line. I feel this line whenever someone says it to me, even when I say it to someone else, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. What a beautiful phrase. Shining to me makes me think of the sun. And I definitely think that is what is being recalled here in this line. The sun gives life. 
And even back then, it was, well, more so back then, it was explicitly understood. Without the sun, things do not grow. We, of course, know today the way that photosynthesis works. You've got to have sun for plants to grow or light. You also have to have sun for our own good. Things like, where do you get your vitamin D? You know, the sun is good for us. It, too much sun can, you know, make you have to cut things off your face. But the sun for us is really good. It's beautiful, keeps us healthy. And so God's light shining upon us is really meant to connect to that kind of warmth, that life-giving sense that we get from light all around us. Third line says, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is an extremely royal kind of phrase. So if you imagine a king in a court, people would come to the king and make requests. If the king lifted his countenance upon you, then the king was actually considering you. And in a sense, you received the king's attention. And so when a face was lifted up to you, it actually meant that the person in charge, the powerful person, was seeing you. And being seen means not only consideration, but it could also connect back to the security issue. And so there really is this sense that God sees you. And so when God lifts his face upon you, that is meant to be that you are no longer just one in a million. God's really seeing you. And there's some gift in that seeing. And so here we've got this really lovely, round, super simple, but very profound blessing. And I want to note that just as I was reading this, without even intending it to be a prayer, just reading through this, at least three people in the pews actually closed their eyes to listen to it. I mean, this impacts us in a pretty tangible way. So I'm going to read it one more time because it's just really good. Ready? Here we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Oh, it feels good. It's a really beautiful thing. Now let's talk about blessing within the religious context. So blessing can be very broad, but then when we put it into context where, where this is, this is Aaron's blessing. And who is Aaron? Aaron is the first priest. And so this is not just nice words people can say to each other. What we're really seeing here in Numbers is the direction that the priests bless the people in this very particular way. So what then is a priestly blessing? For the Episcopalians in the room, this will make a bit more sense because we actually do say and use the word priest when we talk about our ordained leaders. Protestants kind of got away from this word. And so it's a little bit different in different Christian contexts as to how this really feels and how this is held as a religious body. I found this very interesting because when I, I think most of you know I was raised Roman Catholic, and Nicole and I decided to become Episcopalian, and as we were in the classes to become Episcopalian, one of the priests said to me, do you want, have you ever considered being a priest? And at that point, I said, uh, no, thank you. Um, and they said, well, we'd love for you to discern spiritual gifts. They had a thing for young people between 21 and 24. 
to go through and discern giftedness. And it was really meant to be that kind of Pauline idea of there are spiritual gifts and everyone has a gift. What is your gift so you can use it? And I thought, okay, that sounds nice. And so I began to go through this process, but was led by three priests. And part of the discernment was potentially foreordained ministry, in addition to teaching and healing and caring and all those things. We went through multiple sessions, and every time I would reference the ordained people, I would call them ministers. And mostly it was because I had my own Catholic baggage with what it meant to be a priest. And this was not, I didn't like that word at the time. I was trying to like differentiate myself. And I'll never forget in one of the sessions, I referenced being a minister again. And one of the priests just like blurted out, I am not a minister. I am a priest. Do not use that word anymore. And I remember thinking, well, aren't you sensitive? Um, but <laughs> what was interesting about that is it forced me to reflect on what really is the difference? Um, because in my mind, it was like, whatever, potato, potato. Um, and that is not actually the case. There is, in different branches of Christianity, a different understanding of what it actually means to be an ordained ministry. Priests are meant, and we see it right here, priests are meant to take care of the sacred things. Priests are meant to really embody as vessels God's presence in the middle of a people. And we see that very plainly here with this blessing. Because essentially, look at the very last verse that I read, verse 27. They, the priests, shall put my name on the Israelites, and I, God, will bless them. In that one little verse, we get the entire kind of philosophical or theological idea of what priesthood really means. Priests are not in and of themselves bearing, well, what I should say, how am I gonna put this? Priests do not have magic powers. Do not think of priests as having some weird control of godly power that can be abused or misused. Priests are simply the ones who have been named by a community to actually bring God's presence in a very tangible, we would say sacramental way into the life of a faith community. We see here that when priests name God onto people, then God blesses them. Now, I will tell you very plainly, so be very clear, blessings can come through anyone to anyone. Of course they can. We, though, as Episcopalians, and this goes way back, do believe in what we call sacrament, that when certain people do certain things in a certain way, in a certain place, and with a certain group, God's presence is more really real. Isn't that so theological? Um, Eucharist is a good example. We say prayers in a certain way, in a certain group of people, and then we believe that God is really present in the bread and the wine on the altar. Does that mean that we can't ask God's blessing at any time, any of us? Absolutely not. 
Any of you can call God's blessing on anyone else. Sure. But we do believe that there is something different when it's done in a particular sacramental way. And so we know about sacramental blessings. There are general blessings, like at the end of a service, when the priest you know, raises the hands and says, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, bless you. That's a, just a general blessing. We know about absolutions. <clears throat> when we all confess that we have done or not done things that we should or should not do, and the priest absolves, that again is a sacramental moment of blessing that is cleansing. Then we know of the other two where often we use oils, which would be baptism, and the priest is not the one doing the cleansing, but the priest is calling down God's blessing on the person who is being cleansed. And then of course, at the end of life, when we go to anoint with unction, there is a moment where the priest is naming God's reality in that space in a very sacramental way. <clears throat> there are other examples of this, but those are kind of the ones that we all experience pretty regularly. Hmm. That's probably good enough. What are your questions or thoughts on that? Oh, please, I know you have them. Nobody? I see smirking faces like, I kind of have one, but <clears throat> I don't really want to say it in front of everybody else. Come on, be brave. Absolutely. Um, so the comment is, I have a problem when people say they are blessed when everything's going very well in their life. Um, the implication being, if things aren't going well, you are not blessed. Um, there's a very fine line here that we have to walk carefully and intentionally. A blessing can absolutely be something that feels good. And a blessing does not have to feel good. So if we can accept that God's blessings come in many forms, and oftentimes we don't want them, then I actually think we can agree that being blessed is okay all the time. Um, there is a sense that we are always blessed, regardless of what's going on. In a similar way, this is kind of like the prayer conversation that we've had a million times, which is when you pray, prayers, they just, prayers must be disconnected from whatever happens after your prayer. Prayers are not, and I've, I've said it so many times in here, Prayers are not to convince God to do something. Prayers are also not to inform God of something that he doesn't already know. Um, which, you know, I know we laugh, but how many times have you thought, oh, I should have prayed about that? As if, oh, had I informed God of that, then maybe something else would have happened as if God would not have been aware otherwise. That's not, that's not how it works. Prayer is 
our willingness to enter into a humble posture. And so like I'm the kind of person where it, I love Episcopalians, they go up, you know, do all kinds of stuff, but Episcopalians love to stand instead of kneel at like fun times during the year or you know if you're in a chapel service and then people want to stand during the Eucharist prayer I never stand I am a kneeling person um, I like to kneel which is actually it's odd because I'm so often behind the altar not kneeling but if I'm not behind the altar I'm always kneeling because there is something what's that old phrase don't remember what your knees are for um, I am rarely accused of being humble and I think that for me, it is, it is a physical, it is good for me to physically represent humility. Um, it is a reminder to me. I know I want and need it. And I think that in another, in a sense, prayer is that way too. There is a submission and a vulnerability and a humility in prayer. Blessings can be disconnected from our feelings. I think it's very fair to say we are blessed, hard stop. Regardless of whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, whether we are happy or not, we are blessed, period. Now, is it okay to actually say that when we are happy and feel good and have received gifts or whatever to say that we are blessed? Sure. But I do think it's risky to misunderstand that a blessing is always what we want. And I think that's where you get messed up. Um, I've even, I've preached on this a couple times where I've totally made fun of the like hashtag blessed crap that people use all the time. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when you see someone, I don't know how many of you do this, I'm such a social media person that I, you know, I see people and they'll like, you know, <laughs> I don't believe I'm saying this to you. Um, You've got like, you know, uh, people will take a picture in bed and they're like, oh, I, I woke up this way. And I'm thinking, no, you didn't. You got up and you did your hair and you did your makeup. <laughs> then you laid back in bed and you took that selfie. You know, no, that is not the way to do this. Or I love it when people, you know, say something like, you know, we fell asleep together and it's a picture of, you know, a parent and a child in bed. And I'm thinking, who took the picture? <laughs> like one of you is awake taking the picture, idiot. Um, and so that kind of stuff to me is where you get all messed up. You know, you see t-shirts and people say blessed or it's a coffee mug or it's that sort of stuff. What I want you to, I do not want you to be afraid of recognizing your blessing because we are blessed. But don't only recognize your blessing when everything seems to be going right. I think to recognize your blessing always is ideal because then we are so much in touch with a detachment from the world when we realize we're blessed always that actually helps us to get in right relationship with god Mm -hmm. So, question is, what's the difference between a priest and a minister? Um, I, I often use those words very interchangeably. It, you've got 
priest, pastor, preacher, minister, reverend, whatever you want to say. So depending on the Christian group, that word can be very different. And so you have to know the context around the use of that word. In older traditions, Catholic, Orthodox, it's all priest. There's really no other words really are ever used. If you get into Anglican groups, so Episcopalians, you start to kind of fudge around those words and you may say pastor. I tend to say pastor if it's in some caregiving capacity. Um, I will refer to myself sometimes as a preacher um, because I talk a lot. I think priest to me is so much more sacramental and Yes, we are priests, and I, at the risk of going into all kinds of like boring theology, in the Episcopal Church, we believe in ordination that is yoked to the very ancient understanding of ordination that you see in Orthodox groups, in Catholic groups, where there is what we call ontological change that happens. We are meant to be set apart in a particular way. And it's risky because then you get into the whole like better than or what, it's not that. It's just different and responsible. So when I talk to children, I will often say there are symbols of the priesthood for us. One of them is a collar. And I will say to children, who else in your life wears collars? And of course, kids can answer that immediately. What's the answer? Pets, right? Dogs, cats. Pets wear collars. Well, why do you put collars on your dogs and cats? They belong to you. And so why do we wear collars? Because we belong to God. And so there is a set apart nature in what we do that is not better than. I mean, if anything, it is humbling us like a dog to do the work of the master. The other thing that is a very common symbol is the stole. A stole is, in a sense, a, uh, a representation of a yoke. So what's a yoke? It's what you put on your ox, right, to do the work. And so the reason we wear stoles is in order to show that we are doing God's work when we are functioning sacramentally. And so that kind of symbolism is really meant to set us apart. When you go beyond those traditions into what is more Protestant, then you get a lot more of the pastor, minister, reverend kind of language because there is no sacramental identity. Well, okay, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. There is most often no sacramental function like you see in the Episcopal Church, right? You go to say a Baptist, worship service, there's mostly never communion. It's occasional, right? Occasionally when Baptists are like, we should maybe do that, then they do communion and they give you the little pop top, you know, where you like pop the top and then you've got the grape juice or whatever. Um, That's really not a part of their core identity in the way that it is for us. And so their ordained people are not priests. They're actually doing ministry. That's where you get the word minister. And so it is, in our structure, it really is that priests are supposed to be doing sacramental work, 
and then other people are doing other work. Episcopalians tend to fudge this like everything else we do. Um, you go in the Catholic Church, my Catholic Church growing up was at least as big as St. Michael. There was one priest and there was one secretary. That's it. Because everyone else did all the work. When it came to education or music or you name it, everyone showed up and they did it. Decorating the church, cleaning things, setting up. The people did it, period. And if the people didn't do it, it didn't get done. Because it's not what a priest does. A priest is at the altar taking care of the sacred things. That's it. They are, it's Eucharist, it is anointing, it is blessing, that's it, period. You get all the way to congregational Protestant groups, and pastors are often doing all of the other things. You, you may have a huge pastoral staff doing all of that stuff. In the Episcopal Church, we kind of go both ways. Priests tend to have to do both, the sacramental stuff and also the kind of ministry stuff. We do have a lot of lay ministers in the Episcopal Church. Those are people who are committed as a vocation to the work of ministry, but not as an ordained person. And so technically speaking, that's the difference, even though oftentimes it doesn't function that way. I mean, I will tell you as responsible for this church, I, am, I have been trying and we continue to try to move our priests more and more to where they are more so doing the work of priestcraft then they are doing everything else that has to be done in a church. That takes coordination and strategy and clarity and all of those things. But priests tend to be happier, healthier, function better if they're mostly doing priest work and not mostly doing non-priest work. That's kind of how it works. I'm not sure if I really answered that question very well, but. It depends on the branch of Christianity as to what that really means. Going back to your comment about blessings, I think a challenge that I give myself is not falling into this rut, one of the better word, rut of thinking blessings are good things. Right. You know what I like about what you're saying is that blessing is, in a sense, a discernment. It's almost like a spiritual discipline. To look for the blessing actually is great for us because it helps us to reframe the way that we see the world in really powerful ways. The world is really good at making us see things and believe things and behave in ways that are really not godly. Um, the world's super good at that. So for us to create almost the discipline of seeking after God regularly, it's, it's a really positive impact for us. One of the stories that I like to tell is um, I was a new priest, I think it was my first year, it may have been maybe my second year, and I had gone through Curcio, which was a, which in Alabama at the time was very excellent. Alabama did Curcio right. I know that Dallas has a mixed history of that, um, but they did it very well there. And part of the process was when you went through the weekend, 
you came out and you joined a reunion group. And that was essentially a small group, four to six people. You'd met weekly and you just, you were accountable to each other. And you kind of reminded each other to be anchored in God's kind of reality. One of the questions, went to my first reunion group, very excited about it, you know, I was like, smile. And then one of the questions that they asked was, what was your moment closest to Christ this week? And we kind of went around the table to say it. And I did not have one. And I'm the priest at the table, and I couldn't think. I was like, I think, what? Oh, I'm, I, I'm as totally, I was, promise you, I was not listening to what they were saying like I should have been. I was like, moment to Christ. What, so, mm. I mean, I couldn't think of one. I was so mad I didn't have one that I left. And of course, if you know me well enough, you know I am my, one of my weaknesses is I am super competitive. And so I left and I was like, I'm going to have five moments of Christ next week. You know, I mean, that was kind of, it's not exactly the point. Um, but I began to look for them and acts totally accidentally. I started every day, multiple times a day, looking for when I really was close to God. And that changed me for good because now it is just a habit. I mean, I can see it many times a day. I'll have these moments where it's like a bell rings. I'm like, there he is. And that's great because it's made me better for having created that habit. And I, that's what I hear you saying, Viola, is that the seeking after where the blessing is actually creates in us the capacity to see God in our life. Because if the blessing is only the stuff we like, we are missing most of what God is doing for us. It's very similar to, I think we overuse the word happy when we really should use the word joy, because I think joy is complex and deep and you can weep and be joyful and you can sing and be joyful. Joyful is so much bigger than happy. And I think blessing has that same kind of character. Blessing is so much bigger than happy or feel good. Blessing can be deeply, deeply painful and still present because it just simply means God's with you. And if you can see where God is, then man, you become just a much more grounded, rooted person. And it really separates you from the world in the best sense. You are not victim to the ebb and flow of what happens around the world. You're not, you should not be disconnected from it. But when we, we have that phrase where you say, be in the world and not of the world, that's the line that you walk where you need to be sensitive to what the world is going through and what people are going through in your life and also know that what we see is not all there is and that God's reality is so much bigger than any of the pain that we go through. That's the whole story of Easter is even death itself, which is like the great fear, we no longer have to fear. And so it's there, but we can remember that God rises above it all and that that's really the blessing that we have in our lives. The third section of today's lesson was that God says you don't always have to follow the rules if they're not easy to follow. Done. Um, we'll talk about that. I know. We'll, we'll do that next week. It's not going to take too long, but I've used up all my time. And so go and be blessed. And I'll see you next week. Bye.